Hi, and welcome back to the future of figure skating. My name is Anna Keller, and today's guest is Rachel Flatt. Rachel was the 2008 World Junior Champion, the 2010 U.S. National Champion, and placed seventh in the 2010 Olympic Games in Vancouver. After retiring from competitive skating in 2014, she completed her degree from Stanford University and has gone on to pursue a PhD in clinical psychology with a focus on eating disorders and mental health in athletes. As an athlete member of the U.S. Figure Skating Board of Directors and as part of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Task Force on Mental Health, Rachel has brought both her personal and professional expertise to making elite sport a healthier environment. So Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> awesome. So after, and in addition to all of your accomplishments as a skater and in competitive skating, you've gone on to some very cool research. So I wanted to ask you how you got interested in psychology and in the work that you're doing now. It was a bit of a roundabout <laughs> way to get there. When I was in undergrad, I retired from skating my junior year of college and really thought that I was going to pursue medical school. Took my MCATs and everything, even applied. <laughs> but halfway through the application process, I just realized my heart really was not in it and it wasn't 100% of what I wanted to do down the line. And so I ended up returning to a research lab that I had started working in my senior year of college, and they primarily focused on digital mental health tools with a specific focus on eating disorders. And once I kind of got familiar with the platforms, with the research, and just with the line of work more broadly, I immediately saw so many overlaps and so many needs within skating and within elite sport around eating disorders and um, just athlete mental health more broadly. And so I completely fell in love with the research. And now that I've had a number of years of clinical work under my belt through my PhD training, I've completely fallen in love with that. So <laughs> it all worked out. It was great. Although getting the doctorate degree has been a little bit <laughs> challenging, especially with all the COVID restraints. But yeah, it's been great. I've completely fallen in love with it. And it just feels like this was the path that I was supposed to be on. That's great. So where are you now in the process of your PhD? And what is the balance for you between research? And do you also interact with patients through the work that you're doing? Or are you more behind the scenes? Yeah, so I'm in my very last year of my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. We then go on to do what's called like a clinical internship. It's kind of similar. It's actually very similar uh, in process to med school residency. Um, so I just matched. I'm actually heading over next door to Duke. <laughs> so, so that certainly didn't sit super well with all the UNC fans, but you know, that's how it goes sometimes. I mean, in terms of what I've done in grad school, I mean, I've spent a lot of time researching both digital eating disorder interventions and eating disorders and athletes. And so have spent a lot of time in front of my computer doing a lot of stats and a lot of writing and a lot of reading. But I also have a lot of patient interactions. You know, I've treated a bunch of folks with eating disorders. I'm currently working with some student athletes at UNC, which has been a blast and gotten some other specialized training and working with folks with anxiety disorders and couples with relationship distress, which 
I really am excited to kind of apply to athlete and coach relationships down the line because I see a lot of applications there for, you know, I think a lot of us have probably experienced this over the years that coach relationships can be very beneficial and also problematic to maintaining or increasing your risk for various mental health concerns. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of what, or at least a a little bit of what I've done uh, over the past several years. And then on internship, I'll be primarily focusing on clinical work. So getting some additional uh, eating disorder training, and I'll also have some additional opportunities to work with athletes there, um, as well as just some generalist training. So yeah, so that's a, a bit of a snapshot of what I've done the last five years and what I'll be doing next year. That's great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into more of some of these topics. As I've been talking to many current and former skaters about their experiences and about some of the issues that come up in the sport, really eating disorders, body image have continued to come up even in the conversations where I didn't expect it. And so I'm curious what you see as being behind the prevalence of eating disorders in figure skating. Yeah. I mean, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) To be honest, I think we certainly have some good research out there that shows there are a lot of different risk factors that could be at play, especially in a sport like skating, where you're participating in a sport that's judged. You're having to wear revealing outfits. Um, You are having to, you know, be in the public eye. These aesthetic sports is what they're called um, in the research, but it's really sports that kind of have an emphasis on how you look and you're judged for that in many respects. And there's this, you know, perception that being leaner or being thinner gives you a competitive advantage. And, you know, as we've seen, like in the gymnastics world, all of those ideas have completely been broken over the last two Olympic cycles and showing that people with different body shapes and sizes, you know, can really bring something new to the sport. And I think that is something that is essential for skating down the line. I don't know if there's been a lot of willingness to accept that and embrace that kind of uh, approach or mentality. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of other components to just the culture around the sport, especially in relation to working with coaches who make negative comments about your weight or your body. And it's not in a way that is just focused on the technique. You know, it's about hey, you need to drop 10 pounds before your next competition. Or, ooh, your lines are not looking as good because you're putting on weight kind of thing. Those types of comments are not at all helpful, (laughs) um, but are so pervasive in skating. And having my own experiences with poor body image and having dealt with, you know, what it's like to be at the top of the sport and experience the pressures, both from fans, from coaches, from officials, you know, that just gets to you after a point. And it's really hard to have a thick skin. And especially when you're growing up as a teenager in front of, you know, millions of TV viewers and even more on social media now. So it's just really hard to kind of put that all into one single thread that says this is the thing about skating (laughs) that maybe increases your risk a lot more for poor body image and eating disorders. I think it's just a whole wave of different things. Um, But I think more than anything, it's just the culture that we have in the sport. And it's past the point where those calls for change in general, like those calls have been there for a long time. So now it's time for us to take action on that. Yeah. In terms of both prevention and treatment. If you can give our 101 
you know, we're talking at a systemic level about the sport as a whole, as well as when we're talking about an individual athlete and what their risk factors might be or what treatment can look like for somebody who is experiencing an eating disorder in a sport. Yeah, I'll start with treatment. You know, when folks have eating disorders, sub-threshold eating disorders, or even just are kind of struggling with poor body image, like I think it's so important that folks seek out help, whether that's through a licensed therapist or a dietitian, just someone to kind of get you into addressing some of those concerns that is so important. I mean, from a treatment perspective, it's really helpful to have kind of a coordinated team where you have like a psychologist and someone with an eating disorder training background, you have a dietitian, again, someone with an eating disorder background and usually either a primary care physician or some sort of medical physician who does have an eating disorder background as well, just so you can kind of coordinate care. You know, each of those people hold very different sets of expertise and knowledge. So it's really important from that standpoint to ensure that you have a team that works really well together and stays in constant contact about your care. And certainly there are varying degrees of the level of care, I should say, anything from seeing someone, you know, on an outpatient basis, kind of once a week or twice a week kind of thing to being hospitalized if care is, you know, really warranted for folks who are really sick. And, you know, I've worked with patients all along that spectrum and, you know, treatment can look very different for a lot of different contexts and a lot of different people. So, you know, the most important thing is just getting care, getting help when you need it right off the bat and ensuring that you have a good support system um, outside of that treatment team, whether that's your parents, your extended family, your friends, coaches, you know, whoever needs to kind of be in that safety net for you to ensure that whatever you're doing in treatment then can be translated to when you're out in the ring. From a like prevention standpoint, I mean, gosh, where do I start? <laughs> There's so much. I think the two things I'll focus on are like one, education. You know, the more that we can spread awareness, the more that we can ensure that people just have a basic working knowledge of what the signs and symptoms are of eating disorders or poor body image, um, what that can look like, because it can look very different for different folks, you know, especially if they have different backgrounds or different experiences. And so I think the more education, the more knowledge, working knowledge that folks have, whether you're a parent, a skater, a coach, an official, like whatever your involvement is in skating, like I think that is just essential knowledge to have. And secondly, like knowing where to refer people. If you're worried about someone, know how to communicate with them in a very like soft and gentle way and encourage them to get some help. Like that in and of itself can be a great preventive tool to ensure that you're creating like a safe and warm environment as well as showing that like, hey, it is totally okay to share if you're struggling. It's okay if you also don't want to talk about it. And we also need to make sure that you're getting the support and the help that you need. So, you know, the more that we talk about this, the more that we talk about mental health, it's just going to be something that people become hopefully more comfortable with over the years. But, you know, it's going to take a long time to change the culture, which in and of itself is going to be the best preventive tool. So hopefully we can get that direction <laughs> about eating disorders and about, you know, other mental health concerns more broadly. But it really does start with education and awareness and making sure that folks are getting a little bit more comfortable talking about these topics and normalizing the fact that mental health challenges exist, especially within elite athletes and from more really across the spectrum from recreational to elite athletes. As we live in a culture that has diet culture is 
real and in every part of life as well as in sports. What would you say people should be looking out for as signs that somebody may be moving from not that necessarily thinking and talking about weight and dieting is necessarily like big picture a healthy thing, but from like what is common in our culture to a more concerning place? Yeah, those lines sometimes get blurry, honestly, with athletes in particular, in part because with an eating disorders, for instance, you know, sometimes the behaviors that may be deemed, quote unquote, healthy within a sport context really aren't, you know, or it's just been normalized for such a long time, right? Like being involved in diet culture, right? Like that greatly increases your risk of developing an eating disorder. So, I mean, some of the the main signs and symptoms that we will often look for um, is if someone's eating habits have changed drastically, like if they're restricting their food intake or have very rigid food rules, if they have lost a lot of weight recently, even if they're still kind of in a weight or BMI range that is categorized as normal, still when you see folks who have a drastic weight loss in, in a short period of time, that's something that we are often concerned about. We also look for different eating disorder behaviors. So if they are restricting, sure, if there's binge eating that's happening, so when people People are eating a lot of food in a very short period of time and kind of experiencing this loss of control. That's one behavior that's often associated with an eating disorder, as well as what we call compensatory behaviors. So those can be vomiting, um, using or misusing diuretics or laxatives or diet pills, compulsively exercising. That's a big one in the athletic community. And again, that's kind of where some of those gray areas are that we're still trying to, you know, just understand a little bit better through the research is what really constitutes compulsive exercise and where does that line get drawn with elite athletes or with high training volumes or going above and beyond outside of regular training. So when you have folks who are going to the gym for an extra two hours to just work off, you know, work on their cardio or to burn off all these additional calories that they think they've ingested, that's typically a sign that um, they don't necessarily have a healthy relationship with exercise and may be part of an eating disorder. You also see folks with um, poor body image. So if they're you know, making a lot of statements about their own bodies or their own weight or making a lot of comparisons even with other people, um, that's often a sign that there may be something distressing there. So there's a number of different things that we could be looking for, but those are some of the biggies. But more often than not, sometimes it can be really subtle. That's one of the hardest things about eating disorders is that oftentimes they are so secretive and they, you know, people become very good at becoming discreet. And so if you just notice even small changes in mood or um, just general fatigue even or increased injury rates, those can also be in indicative of, you know, some problematic behaviors or uh, some pathology there. So it's a wide spectrum, <laughs> but more often than not, when you see someone who's just out of character and has been kind of in a funk for a little bit, it's just good practice to ask and see if they're okay and see if they're struggling. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the role is of coaches, particularly in terms of, you know, prevention and treatment in this area? And what can we be doing to reach and educate coaches more? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of educating coaches on these topics in part because oftentimes they're some, they're the first people to recognize that something is up, right? 
or they may be, you know, inadvertently kind of maintaining some of these illnesses in a way. And so when we are giving coaches education, when we're giving them, you know, the information to say, okay, look, these are the signs and symptoms that you need to look for. Here's a way to communicate with your athletes so that when you're speaking about their bodies in terms of technique, this is a way that isn't going to trigger subsequent body image concerns, right? Here are ways to speak that we know and are probably very aware of given, you know, a lot of eating disorder uh, stories over the years in skating that from a coaching perspective, these are ways to communicate with athletes that are problematic, you know? So just giving coaches some really helpful tools and knowledge around how to communicate, how to identify if something might be going on and how to ensure that they're not, you know, inadvertently or intentionally contributing to the problem. Um, I think those are some great initial steps. And I think those should be, you know, kind of mandatory or just required types of education at this point. Um, And it's not, you know, just about eating disorders. It's about mental health more broadly, because you're working with athletes first and foremost as a human, you know, and it's like, you're spending so much time with them. You want to make sure that you're doing right by them, but that you're also doing right by them as a human, as an athlete too. So the more that we can prioritize like health and wellness before really even focusing on the results. Like, I think that's just going to be a game changer to increasing resilience, increasing the, you know, satisfaction and like the happiness that people, you know, bring to skating as well as reducing their risk for various mental health and physical health concerns. Yeah. And especially given how many coaches, the majority of coaches come from being skaters themselves and may have you know, experience these same messages, whether they were aware of it or not. One of the barriers to change perhaps within skating just is the way in which people stay in the sport. It's a small world and things can be perpetuated. Mm-hmm. Through that. Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing to watch you know, even like in, in my peer group now, I'm seeing a lot of folks who I competed against who are now going on to coach. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I'm so glad that they're, you know, being a part of the sport now and giving back. And like, I know that they recognize that these are some of the issues that we're facing and the coaching strategies that they were raised with to then change like what the experience is for the kids that they're coaching to make sure that they're reducing the risk of mental health burns or and ensure that like the experience is so much more positive while still being able to pursue the results that they want to. So it's, it's been really great to see that happening. I mean, I think the more that we can support those types of coaching approaches and ensuring that folks are taking the time to get educated and, you know, make sustainable changes in their approaches over time and just learning as the research learns and learning as the clinicians learn. um, I think that's just going to be really helpful to changing what the experience is for these kids who are up and coming through the sport. Yeah. And I'm curious as well, certainly with your experience in the U.S., are there requirements for coaches to have certain kinds of education in order to be accredited at a certain level? Like, obviously, we would hope that there would be you know, voluntary interest in wanting to learn and to keep up with learning. But do you see any kind of top-down approach being helpful here as well? Yeah, I mean, there certainly are some 
continuing education courses that are required, not any that are required annually in terms of like mental health and wellness or eating disorder prevention. I think we're hopefully moving in that direction. <laughs> and it sounds like there may be some, you know, kind of prospects in the line where we are able to ensure that the coaching community that is working with U.S. figure skating and is working with USFS athletes really does have a much more substantial education background and not just in terms of technique, not just in terms of, you know, here's how to create a, a great skater, um, just in terms of results, but really around how to create um, what they call kind of a 360 degree athlete, like how do you ensure that the athletes that you're working with from a coaching perspective are really getting the most out of the sport and developing into great humans. So I think that is hopefully coming down the pipeline, <laughs> but I really strongly believe that the more educational op opportunities that we have, as well as like even opportunities to just discuss this person, to role play with how to, how to speak with athletes, you know, how to communicate about mental health. Because I know for sure that first couple conversations I had about mental health felt very awkward and I didn't know you know how best to support people and I just kind of like Bambi walking around you know and was not quite sure how to how to navigate that and now that I spend you know well many more hours than four a week <laughs> thinking about and talking about mental health I certainly feel a lot more comfortable around it but know that that's not the case for everyone. So the more that we can give people opportunities to learn, to speak about it, to just engage with it in a way that normalizes it and destigmatizes it um, is going to be huge. So hopefully that can translate to the coaches as well. Absolutely. What is the role of learning about proper nutrition, having, you know, access to that information as part of a elite skaters training it seems like that varies widely at what age and level people might get that information or get access to good information about nutrition at all. I'm a huge proponent of giving people more information <laughs> so that they know what they're walking into and they know what they're working with. And it's interesting because I think more often than not, there's messaging in sports and in skating too about you know, using food as fuel to ensure that your body is able to perform the way you want it to when you need it to. And I've even seen some instances where that has been really helpful information from a recovery standpoint to just start thinking about your body in that way, rather than something that you're really unhappy with. And I've also seen the reverse where some folks have come in for treatment saying like actually using this idea food as fuel was actually detrimental to the way that I approached my nutrition and that ended up getting me in trouble for the subsequent eating disorder. And so when I've been talking with some of these folks from a clinical standpoint, I think it's just really important to figure out what works for them as an individual. I don't think there is a cut and dry you know, formula that works for everyone, whether that's from a treatment perspective or from a nutrition standpoint. And, you know, certainly nutrition is not my area of expertise, but I think the more information that we can give people to help them understand what their body's needs are, what they may expect as their bodies change over time, because we know that from a like seasonal kind of periodization standpoint, uh, as your training volume increases or decreases, your nutritional needs are going to be a little bit different. Same thing as you grow and as your body goes through puberty and things like that. It's just going to be really important to understand like 
what the needs are and how those may change over time. I think it can be really helpful to be working with a dietitian, to be working with a you know nutritionist to ensure that you've got that information. And I also think it's really important to be working with folks in a way that is uh, working all together. It's a really concerted effort to ensure that the coach, the parent, the athlete, the dietitian, the medical team, you know, everyone is kind of on the same page around the athlete's needs and that they're advocating for what's best for the athlete as a human. So I think nutrition is a big component of that. And being able to kind of arm athletes with that information earlier can be really helpful to, again, just kind of demystifying some of this process. Yeah, I've been encouraged to see that there does seem to be a more open discussion about the impact of puberty as something that everybody is going to have to go through and that you're, you will figure out rather than as sort of a career ending thing that you have to uh, avoid and delay. We've seen the increase in the age limit for seniors, but I was wondering if you had more thoughts about that aspect in particular. Yeah, I mean, I put skating in a similar bucket as sports like gymnastics, where you have so many athletes who are progressing through the sport so quickly, and especially at the elite level, like you're often seeing folks who are anywhere from 13 to 17 or 18 in their quote unquote prime years, which looking back on like my career, that still kind of blows my mind. (laughs) And I think about like my experience having gone through puberty in the public eye, and it's just crazy when I think back to like the comments that people made and yeah, that there was kind of this emphasis to go back to a body that I didn't have anymore. You know, it it was like, what do you mean? This is a natural part of being a human. (laughs) I don't understand why I'm getting criticized for this, you know? So it felt very punitive. And I think still that messaging is around and it's really difficult to see that. And in knowing like the effect that it had on me, knowing the effects that it had on my ears and the detrimental effects it can have on the onset of an eating disorder, poor body image, like those are huge risk factors here when we're criticizing athletes for developing into a regular human body, albeit in a very athletic type of sport. So, you know, thinking about kind of the age limit, it's been an interesting conversation hearing about how it's really aimed at kind of reducing health and well-being, negative outcomes, and ensuring that you have athletes who are really physically equipped to handle like the training loads. I think that is a game changer. That'll be really helpful in ensuring that there's a little bit more of an even playing field, especially when you get to the senior level. But I also think about the fact that when you have athletes who are kind of going through recreationally or at any other capacity in the sport, I think it's just going to be really nice to be able to feel there's less of a clock on the quote unquote success at a really early age. And I think it'll just alleviate a lot of the pressure there. And I think it'll also give a lot of athletes the time to just let their bodies like heal if they get injured when they're young, to ensure that growing, you know, in the way that's supposed to and be able to feel like they can just be themselves however they want to be. So I really hope that it opens a lot of doors and I really hope that it, it does see positive impacts on reducing, you know, those negative physical and mental health outcomes. But yeah, it's just really exciting to see 
you know, some potential changes that could be really helpful for a lot of athletes and could really, again, just normalize the fact that it's like, yeah, your body's change as you go through puberty. <laughs> and as you get older, that is a thing that you just have to know about being a human. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. One conversation that I had a little while ago was with May Bernice Mete, and she had a lot of interesting things to say about finding coaches that she could work with that would recognize that her body type and her needs and the technique that she might need to use was actually different than another skater and not trying to make the skater fit the technique, but make the technique fit the skater. And that's definitely gotten me thinking about these questions of individualizing approaches rather than trying to make everyone fit into a very cookie cutter model of what a skater is supposed to look like and what technique is exactly is supposed to look like and all of these questions. When we have conversations about skating, I think there is this idea that, well, all of the aesthetic things aside, there's just physics involved here. So if you're lighter, you're automatically going to be better, which raises questions then of, okay, A, is that true? And then B, better at what and which skills do we prioritize as a sport and we can make choices about that but I'm curious sort of how you see that piece of like the actual skills involved in skating and the technique being something we should be looking at it or addressing yeah I mean there's so much to that you know first of all like props to me because I think being able to feel empowered to like seek out teams that will really support you in the ways that you need like that can be so to do. And I know that I struggled certainly with that as, as I was competing and being able to work with folks who really understood me and like understood how my body just like physically worked and then making sure that the technique mapped onto that, that made such a big difference in like reducing my injuries, reducing like my poor body image, and also just giving me more confidence as a skater. So like, you know, anyone who can find that and really develop that and create that, like that is such an essential part to being a skater. And I agree. I mean, I think this idea around, I mean, you can't deny physics, right? Like that's going to be a part of our sport forever and every other sport. (laughs) Um, And at the same time, I think their skating is an art and it's a sport, you know, it is truly both. And so I think when we are using kind of these cookie cutter technique foundations and doing so in a way that is producing like identical types of skaters, to me, we lose a lot of the artistic component of the sport. You know, we lose, like we lose people's identities. We lose people's like artistry on the ice and we lose like the excitement in a way, you know, I think it's, (laughs) it's so much more fun to see all these different styles, all these different kinds of people performing on the ice. Like that to me is what makes skating so much fun to watch. And, you know, I think back to, when I was initially competing, like I was so hardcore about the technique and making sure that, you know, my jumps were always on paid off. Sure. And I also, you know, I also took a hit on my artistic side. And so I think the way that, you know, we have to move forward is like knowing that both of those components are part of the sport and how can we make sure that from a body image perspective, from a technique perspective, from a coaching perspective, like the entire culture around this needs to ensure that we are providing an environment and technical foundations that really support both of those things. So 
I don't know if there, <laughs> I don't know if there's an easy answer to that question. I, I don't think there is one without the other. Yeah. And I'm very interested in these questions around there's the culture of the sport and the education that we do in that way. And then what are the actual, you know, in what ways are our judging system or the actual way that we value certain elements and certain types of skating impacting that. And there's a give and take between those different aspects of the sport will be interesting to see certainly how the age piece develops moving forward. I'm also curious to see how things like Skate Canada recently has allowed pairs and dance teams to be people of any gender. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, will make people look differently at these questions about the physics of lifting. And so all of these different aspects may start to get us to question a little bit more the assumption that there's only one way to achieve a certain result. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. I think all those types of questions are essential for us to move forward and essential for like the skating community to modernize. I really hope that we keep asking those kinds of questions. I'm so glad that you're asking those types of questions. I don't know. It's really exciting to see the growth in, in those ways. And when I saw Skate Canada change their rules, I was like, this is incredible. This is so, I don't know. It's just really exciting to see, you know, how we can challenge the status quo a bit and ensure that Again, this is a community for anyone to come in and to enjoy and to succeed in whatever capacity they want to. So I hope you keep asking those kinds of questions and I hope you keep pushing because that's going to be so important moving forward. There's still so much resistance, whether intentional or just sort of ingrained in this idea of what skating is. You know, this is something that I am hoping to talk to more judges about over time as well, because I'm very interested in how much ideas of what is beauty, what is elegance, how many of these ideas come from an idea of the skating of the past or an idea of a ballet dancer and are tied to, you know, particular cultural norms and tied to particular body types and all of these questions, I don't necessarily get the sense that there is a lot of open discussion. You know, as you said, this is an aesthetic and judged sport. So we should also be looking at when we say we're judging people based on how they look, what do we actually mean when we're saying that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that is a difficult question to ask when people don't necessarily want to look in the mirror at how they would, you know, and so I, I feel like I struggle with that too often because so much of the officiating community, especially at an international level, like they've been involved in the sport for decades, you know, even folks who have been involved for 50, 60 years, it's just, I mean, like, that's incredible to have that kind of a legacy and commitment (laughs) into the sport. And I think it's also hard to kind of push back against or just even reconcile the, you know, current societal changes that we have versus like how the sport has been designed, right? The fact that we have women's and men's categories in and of itself, like doesn't reflect the society that we have now. And I also understand that it looks very different across countries. It looks very different across cultures. And I also think there are ways that we can be creative to address that and ensure that, again, kind of this can be a community and a sport that is fully inclusive. 
of anyone who wants to skate and compete. And so, again, I don't think there are easy answers to those types of questions, but I think the more self-reflection and the more calls for these types of analyses in a way of how, you know, some of the judges and officials do approach these kinds of questions of how does someone look on the ice and how do we judge them for that? Um, what are the types of values that we have in relation to that idea? Um, what are the principles that we hold? Like, I think those are going to be essential questions to ensure that wherever we move forward, we're going in the direction that we as a community want to go in and in supporting athletes of all body types, of all shapes and sizes, of all identities, you know. So I'm hoping that we'll get there. I don't expect it to happen overnight, but <laughs> but I really do think from a mental health perspective and even from an eating disorder prevention perspective, like that's going to be essential. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask a little bit more about some of the work that you've been doing in different spaces. You had mentioned earlier with some of your research about digital tools and interventions around eating disorders. What's involved in that? Yeah, lots of cool stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm currently working on my dissertation and that involves a digital eating disorder intervention. So I've been working with a group, uh, Recovery Record, which is one of the, I think it actually is the largest eating disorder app in the, in the States. And they do some great stuff, but essentially we're looking at how to identify when people are at risk of engaging in eating disorder behaviors in real time so that we can send them interventions in the moment and say, oh, it looks like you're at risk for engaging in a binge or, or engaging in a compulsive exercise episode kind of thing. So here's a, here's a quick intervention that you can use to kind of decrease your risk or prevent that behavior from happening in the first place. So the stage that we are at is basically in the analysis stage of how can we predict these events, you know, accurately in real time. And then the next step would then be kind of adding on the intervention. So that's where we are. It's super cool. It's a pretty cutting edge type of research from a mental health perspective. And I will save you from describing the statistical analyses that I am uh, pulling my hair out over right now, but uh, it's super cool. It's really fun. It's very challenging though, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of trying to use uh, technology to transform how we deliver mental health care. And one of the main reasons I wanted to get into that in the first place was because I understood very quickly and recognized like the impacts of being able to get someone mental health care, like in their hand when they need it in the moment for, you know, for folks who like can't access care, who don't have uh, the funds to support their care, who maybe are, you know, two or three hours away from the nearest mental health care provider, or just don't even feel safe to talk about like their mental health care with you know, their physicians, with their family, their friends, et cetera. I just saw like how life-changing that was for some folks and kind of the initial research that I got engaged in. And it just was, it, it made me recognize that this is going to be something I really want to be a part of my research, my clinical work down the line. Very excited that hopefully some of these tools will be available down the line for folks. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, we've seen little bits of apps like that around other areas of mental health and they're not really a substitute for significant mm -hmm. treatment, but being able to have something in your hand and that accessible is so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, I think in 
in cases where it's really severe mental health concerns, it's definitely not going to be a substitute in many respects um, for face-to-face care or higher levels of care. But I do think, especially for folks who are just going through a bit of a rough time, just need some additional support between sessions, or like I said before, can't access or can't afford um, traditional mental health care. Like these are such great options that are going to be so useful now that we have some really good data to back them up. Yeah, that's really exciting. The other thing you mentioned earlier that I was intrigued by was your comparison of relationship therapy and sort of couples approaches that you could apply to a coach-athlete relationship. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this was an idea I've been sitting on since my first year of grad school, actually. One of my professors uh, is one of the best couples researchers um, probably in the U.S., maybe if not globally. And Don was just talking a little bit about how you could apply these ideas of couples therapy to like other types of relationships. And it just brought the gears turning for me in relation to, hmm, I know a lot of athletes who have had problematic relationships with their coaches for a variety of reasons, um, specific from an eating disorder perspective. Uh, you know, I certainly know a lot of athletes and have experienced it myself where coaches were actively, you know, increasing the risk or contributing to poor body image because of the comments that they were making or whether they were direct or indirect. And even just thinking about like the culture that was developed in some of these ranks, you know, where athletes were not allowed to go to like the pro shops to go get a snack, or you'd have coaches come up and really look poorly upon the types of meal decisions that you were making if it wasn't uh, just fresh produce and meat kind of thing. So just lots of negative interactions over there. So Yeah, just really got me thinking about like, well, certainly from a communication standpoint, like it would be really helpful to kind of even the playing field so that it's not just a coach talking to the student and that it's more of a bi-directional relationship and using some of these tools to kind of facilitate like empowerment for these athletes. Because I think in a lot of those settings, like the athletes feel very disempowered and do not feel like they can speak up about what the coach is saying or about the dynamic that they have. And I also think a lot of those same principles can be applied to the just power dynamic that's that inherently exists, right, with coaches and, and athletes. So thinking about ways to kind of like support the athlete from a positive reinforcement perspective rather than negative and punitive reinforcement. I think there's just a lot of interesting things that could be done there, just again to help facilitate a better relationship that's safer, that is a little bit more conducive to better mental health, um, but also, again, gives the athlete the tools to feel really empowered and to really take ownership over like their skating and the relationship that they have with their coach. So got my brain turning. I don't know if there's much out there <laughs> from a like research perspective or from a, a clinical perspective, but I really think that it could be beneficial for a lot of coaches and athletes. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen the comparisons made talking about parental relationships and coach relationships and the good and the bad of those relationships. But you know, as you were saying this, I was thinking about some of the things we've seen coming up from a safe sport perspective, wanting to put really strict boundaries on coach athlete relationships and trying to, you know, limit certain kinds of interaction and all of those things, which I think are coming from a, a very good place. But rather than saying you should never have a coach, you know, as an athlete that's living with their coach, you should never have a, you know, this situation or that situation. So much of this is about 
is the athlete able to understand what are behaviors that put them at risk? Are they able to speak up? Are they able to, to advocate for themselves? Is that being seen in a positive light in their like rink and in their environment? And so, so much of this comes from that about self-confidence and ability to communicate and advocate as well in, in all of these circumstances where skaters might be at risk for all different kinds of harm. There's, I think there's, there's definitely something there. I yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. Like, I think there's so many instances that we've all heard about, you know, both publicly and, and privately with athletes who have just dealt with these situations because they didn't feel like they could step, um, you know, out of fear of retaliation or um, abuse that was ongoing or whatever the case, you know, or even if it, if it was just like a really difficult power dynamic. And so, I think being able to equip athletes with the tools to speak up, right, to know what those boundaries are, to certainly know like what the safe sport <laughs> rules are. I think that in and of itself is is very important, but also understanding that and knowing what that looks like and feels like in the moment is really hard to navigate when you're also like as a young teenager thinking about like, okay, what's the technique I'm supposed to do on this jump? What homework do I have later today? Do my friends like my stuff on social media? You know, like there's just so many other things that they're thinking about. And so being able to just clear up some of the gray areas in those relationships and those communication styles, like I think that would just be really, really beneficial for a lot of athletes. And I certainly know it would have been beneficial for me and it just would have felt so much more empowering, especially as I was walking into very adult, uh, you know, situations where everyone around me, you know, coaches, officials, et cetera, everyone was much older and I was the only teenager and I just didn't, you know, I just kind of went along with what was there and what was normalized. So I think it would just help a lot to give people a few more tools and help the athletes feel more empowered. Yeah, absolutely. And for the people in those positions of authority to understand that it's not disrespect for somebody to express a concern or to have a question or to, you know, to push back about what they need for their own like health and well-being that you can have, mm -hmm. um, that that doesn't have to be a conflictual relationship. I think there's a culture of like, yes, respect and authority that has to be balanced. And that's something that takes education on both sides of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this really can't just be on the athletes either. Like I would expect more from all of the adults in the room too, but I really do think that, you know, we've seen this time and time again, that we can't always count on the adults to make the right decisions. And so sometimes we do have to arm the athletes and the kids and the adolescents and young adults kind of going through the sport with enough tools and information to ensure that the decisions that are being made are in their best interest. There's a lot to consider there. And at the same time, there's still young people moving through the world and trying to figure this out on their own. And so if we can put at least one more person in their corner, that would be great. Absolutely. You know, one thing that I was interested in looking back on your career is that you chose to go to college and have a, a full-time student <laughs> experience while you were competing. And that's something that there's a couple of Team USA skaters who are doing that now. And it gets a lot of attention, especially if you go to like an Ivy League or a school like that. But I'm curious how you reflect on that now and whether you would, you know, recommend for skaters to try to balance <laughs> their, you know, their passion about skating with other things that they're passionate about in their lives and sort of handling that as you're getting to be an older teenager, more of an adult. 
Yeah, I'm laughing because I don't know if I would recommend it <laughs> looking back. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I don't know if I would have changed all that much for my career because I wouldn't have landed where I am right now, you know, and I am very happy with where I am. And, and so going through the challenge of balancing elites gaining an elite academic career, basically, that's really what it was. It was very challenging. And I think, you know, some of that was the context, like I was, you know, living in the Bay Area at the time and commuting up to four hours a day between San Jose and Oakland and back to Palo Alto. And you know, I look back, I'm like, why was I doing that? <laughs> that made no sense. Um, but, but it made sense at the time because it was what I really wanted. And I don't know if that type of schedule in particular is something that I would recommend while trying to pursue at that point in time. Like, a, I think I was originally wanting to be a bioengineer and then I ended up just wanting to focus on biology once I took some of the hardcore engineering courses and I was like, whew, that coding is not for me. I mean, I think it's so possible to balance school and skating um, and any other passions that you have in life. I think it's difficult. It's not easy. I mean, it takes a lot of organization and a lot of time management and willingness and I think passion and drive to do it. And I was also one of those people that really didn't want to let anything slide. So it was really hard for me when either school or skating was suffering kind of at the hands of the other to some extent, or just like doing other things. Like I was a junior class president while I was at, at Stanford and loved that, you know, and that was my last year that I competed. So I got really involved in a lot of community based work on campus and I had a blast and that was where I met some of my best friends. And that actually led to me then meeting my husband at school. So <laughs> it all worked out, you know, but yeah, it's, I don't know if I would recommend what I did specifically, but I do highly recommend balancing skating and something else in your life, because I think that for me was the key to feeling a little bit more sane, but also a little bit more balanced. The one year that I took off between high school and college, and I just focused on skating was the year that I think mentally I struggled the most. And physically it was showing up too, because that was when the slew of injuries really started and stay or, or stuck around basically for another three years. I don't know. I mean, I think the more that you can kind of broaden your identity, the more that you can have passions in life outside of the sport, like that's just going to set you up so much better for your eventual retirement. I know we don't want to always talk about retirement and transition out of sport, but I think it's so great to be able to enjoy all that life has to offer and to do so just through the lens of skating can be great. And I also think that being able to have an academic background just to fall back on if skating doesn't work out, you know, to prioritize your academics, if you know that skating isn't something you want to do long-term to support another career down the line, or even just to, you know, go out and just experience like nature or whatever else it is that you're excited about. Just having some balance, I think is essential to being a happy and healthy person. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I've been loving watching Karen Chen's transition to being <laughs> a collegiate skater this year and whatever she decides to do in the future. It's been fun to see somebody who has all of that elite skating background also just be enjoying skating from another side. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah, it's been a blast to, to see that for her. <laughs> so you are now, I think, wrapping up your term as an athlete representative on the U.S. Figure Skating Board of Directors. What's that been like for you? It has been such a great learning experience. Yeah, I just am finishing out my term as of governing council, which is in May. 
And I'm very excited about that <laughs> in part because I'm really looking forward to having a little bit more free time on my hands or I'm not really going to have that much more free time. Let's be honest. I'll be on a, a clinical internship year. It'll be very busy. <laughs> it's been really challenging in part because of when my terms were at picked up right at the beginning of COVID. And that was very challenging. And yeah, I mean, I think it certainly helped me grow. It certainly helped me understand so many more of the mechanisms of what happens both within U.S. figure skating, within the U.S. skating community generally, and also more broadly. And it's really helped me kind of also reflect on my career and understand what were some of the pain points and do those still exist? How are we working with the athletes to ensure that whatever problems we currently have are being addressed and are being addressed in a way that we're making really sustainable change? So I love working with that kind of strategic and creative part of my brain. That's not something that I always get to exercise in my research and clinical work. So it's really fun to kind of think through it at that level and also to think about some of the policies and roles that we have. And again, do they reflect where we are at in this moment in time as a society, as a skating community? Like, are we making sure that whatever decisions we're making, whether it's about the structure of our organization and committees to the specific rules, for instance, that we have, like, do those really reflect where we are currently and where we need to go and want to go as a community? So it's given me a whole different appreciation for this type of work. <laughs> and it's also led to some sleepless nights for sure. <laughs> uh, but I think just in terms of how, you know, you were talking about Karen's uh, transition in into collegiate skating, like that's been a completely different transition for me into understanding and appreciating a completely different side of the sport. And I, I do feel like, you know, after a couple of years of this, like we've made some really positive changes and I still think we have a long way to go, but I think we worked on a major governance overhaul to make sure we were compliant with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic committee rules and regulations and at a federal level, we were compliant. So there are a lot of major changes that we went through during that period of time that I was involved in. And it was really stressful. And it was also such a good learning experience to just stretch my skill set, my ability to advocate for the athlete needs and to ensure like at a broad level, like how can we think about a sustainable success for USFS and athletes moving forward? And how can we move towards a really athlete centric model and make sure that every action, every decision that we're making really backs that up. So that um, at the end of the day was really the most important thing to me was ensuring that that was the approach that we were taking. And I think we're getting there. So <laughs> that's really great. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that it, it does feel positive. And, you know, that's the thing about boards is you spend so much time thinking about these structural and governance things that might feel far removed from, you know, the reason you got involved in the first place, but they are so important to how everything else happens. Yeah, I just never appreciated that as a competitive athlete and never really understood, you know, in part because I don't think I was as interested in in that. <laughs> um, but I also never really took the time to understand like what some of those decisions meant then on my career. 
And so, yeah, I've been trying to advocate for more athletes to get involved in leadership positions because it's like without athletes being at the helm and without athletes being in the room, making where those decisions are being made, like the voice is lost in many respects. Um, so I think it's really essential that, you know, we have more athletes who are currently competing are recently retired, bringing like their perspectives to the table so that whatever decisions are being made, like the athlete voice is absolutely heard and it's absolutely prioritized so that the decisions are really coming from an athlete centric view. And the other structural or bigger picture sports thing that I think I've seen you're involved with is with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee Mental Health Task Force. What's that work been? Yeah, so we are also in a phase of transition. We had kind of been brought together as a group of some athletes, as well as a number of mental health professionals in a variety of different settings nationally who have been involved in athlete mental health for a number of years or for their entire career. <laughs> really felt like kind of being in a room of legends, which was pretty amazing. And I fortunately was able to be there as a, an athlete rep, but was also able to kind of bring some of my clinical psych background uh, to the table, which was so fun. And yeah, we're really brought together initially to help kind of figure out what the future of mental health looked like for the USOPC. And at that point in time, they almost exclusively had sports psychologists kind of as the as the main group of support services for Olympic and Paralympic athletes. And we really wanted to ensure that from a mental health standpoint, the decisions that were being made, the people that were being brought on, um, the policies that were being put together, the emergency action plans that were being put together, even just, again, like redefining the culture on mental health in that Olympic and Paralympic space was going to be something that we could really stand by. So now we're kind of in this phase now that there's been a complete overhaul of the department and it's now the USOPC's psychological services. It's really integrated. You've got a lot of different types of mental health care and sports psychology providers. So there's a really great system in place now that now we're moving into more of a, an advisory role, which is very exciting too. So <laughs> now we get to just kind of make sure that we're supporting, kind of thinking through, again, from a strategy perspective, like what are going to be the long-term needs of the athletes moving forward so that we can put those resources, put those services in place. How can we truly be as like the USOPC, be the leader in offering support services to athletes in that capacity? And I think it's pretty safe to say right now that the USOPC is probably the leader in that across Olympic and Paralympic organizations. So, you know, they were the only ones really to have mental health officers, for example, at the last uh, Olympics and Paralympics. So they had designated mental health care providers available for athletes who were in crisis or just needed someone to talk to. And, you know, thinking back through all of the COVID constraints, like, a lot of people needed some help in the moment. Yeah, so there's just been a lot of a lot of different things that we've been doing, lots of surveys that have gone out, lots of data analysis, lots of kind of think tank moments. Um, it's been a lot of different kinds of things that have been needed in order to just get this set up. And now that the ball is really rolling, and now that we're kind of at the helm of Jess Bartley, who is fantastic and is leading the psychological services department, it's just been so wonderful to see this take off. And I think a lot of athletes feel so much more supportive um, than they had in the past. There's a lot of groups now available, a lot more providers that are available. So 
we're getting there. We're moving in the right direction. Obviously I'm very excited about it, (laughs) but I think from an athlete perspective, there are a lot of athletes who are just thrilled that this has been put into motion and that, you know, even though we still have a long way to go, there's a lot of been a lot of positive strides that have been taken. That is really great to hear. And the example that athletes being able to take care of their own mental health, be comfortable speaking about it really sets for people outside of sports as well. You know, we look up to Olympic athletes in particular as these sort of icons of what it looks like to be like at the peak of humanity kind of. And so being able to see that these are people who can be vulnerable and take care of themselves and that that's okay, I think that's an amazing example, you know, that goes even beyond sport. I want it for the athletes themselves, but also I think that that broader impact is very real. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest strength is vulnerability. And I think the more that we can support people generally as they're navigating like their own mental health experiences, the better. Yeah, I completely agree with you that when you have athletes who are at the peak of their athletic journeys, kind of talking about what their experiences have been and shedding light on this topic, um, I think it can only help with increasing the likelihood that someone who needs help gets it in the moment. Yeah. And I mean, from an education standpoint, like kind of coming back full circle to where we started with this conversation, like this really helps with education and awareness. And so, yeah, the more people share, the more people talk about this honestly and and do from a capacity that um, is genuine and is sharing like where maybe some of the pain points are so that we can correct that and fix that, but also showing others like, Hey, yeah, there are resources that are available and it's just going to be transformative. Yeah. I mean, for athletes to be able to say, I need to take a step back from competing if that's what's right for me and to be able to return and show that the world doesn't end if you do speak up for yourself and get the help that you need is just an incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. thing. I wanted to ask if there are any other topics that we haven't touched on that you'd want to bring up in terms of health and inclusion in skating. Yeah, I mean, I think... I'll actually bring it back to like an eating disorder perspective, since that's kind of where we started. I mean, I think when we are talking about body inclusivity, when we're talking about, you know, changes that we can make from a cultural perspective in the sport to ensure that more people feel safer first and foremost, but feel empowered to kind of show up in a setting where they are not going to be ridiculed for the way that they look. I mean, I think that naturally extends itself to just inclusivity more broadly, whether that's gender, race, whatever, sexuality, SES, like that just, I mean, it it runs the gamut across identities. So I think it's going to be really important that as we think about eating disorder prevention, that we're thinking about inclusivity more broadly and that we are going to have to make substantial changes in the sport, I think, down the line to ensure that this really is a safe place for people and can really be a place where anyone can thrive. So yeah, I mean, I just, I hope that more folks warm up to that idea, you know, because sometimes we're so used to and comfortable with like what we know about the sport. And even when it just comes down to the costuming or the categories that we have right now or the disciplines. So yeah, I just hope that as we kind of look forward that more people warm up to reevaluating what are the priorities in sport is the priority kind of sticking with something that we know, you know, is is comfortable or is the priority making sure that this is going to be a place where anyone can thrive. So we'll see. (laughs) 
that is a great place for us to wrap up. Thank you so much, Rachel. I've really enjoyed talking to you and thank you for your work. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks again to Rachel for such an interesting conversation and drawing connections between health and inclusion in figure skating. You can look at the show notes for the transcript and links to more resources. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at Rachel Flat and on Instagram at reflat. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe to the Future of Figure Skating on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.